The Heretic's Forfeit, a tale of jealousy, murder, and revenge, written and performed by Paul Francis Matthews. Episode 1. The first performance of The Massacre at Paris by Christopher Marlowe at the Rose Theatre, London, in the year of our Lord, 1593. It is the play's final scene. The King of France is dying. Thy king must die. Valois's line ends in my tragedy. The king dies, and then His Royal Majesty's most devoted liege, Henry of Navarre, kissed the king very gently on the forehead, drew himself up to his full height, and said, Come, lords, take up the body of the king, and then I vow so to revenge his death that Rome and all those popish prelates there shall curse the time that e'er Navarre was king and ruled in France by Henry's fatal death. The play ended. Two stagehands entered and closed the curtains. The audience sat in silence, stunned by what they had just seen. The Massacre at Paris was a short play, its running time was barely 90 minutes, but its effect was devastating. In just 24 brief scenes, the play depicted the infamous St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of 1572, when up to 30,000 French Huguenots were murdered on the orders of Queen Catherine de' Medici. But what gave the play its startling immediacy was its climax. Max, the assassination of King Henry III of France. Just across the Channel, continental Europe was being torn apart by religious conflict, so the portrayal of this event, which took place only a few years earlier, in August 1589, felt to an English Protestant audience almost like a news report from the front line. They would have been even more shocked if they had known that the author of the piece was actually a confirmed atheist, in an age when to cleave to such a heresy carried with it a sentence of death. The heretic in question was standing in the wings, and as the curtains were drawn open and the applause swelled, he swept onto the stage to bathe in the audience's adulation. The year of our Lord, 1593, is proving thus far to be a very good one for the greatest genius of the Elizabethan age, Christopher Marlowe, following on from Tamburlaine, The Jew of Malta, Edward II and Dr. Faustus, his latest play, The Massacre at Paris, has been acclaimed as yet another masterpiece. His latest play, however, shall also be his last, for soon Christopher Marlowe, at the age of 29, will be dead. Who's there? It wasn't loud, it was a whisper, but Kit Marlowe could have sworn that he had just heard someone say his name, someone lurking in the shadows by the Rose Theatre's stage door. Who's there? Marlowe asked once more. Who's there? What a terrific way to start a play, thought the someone lurking in the shadows. If it wasn't so dark, he would have written it down on the little notebook he always carried with him. Never mind, he'd do it later. Meanwhile, Marlowe, receiving no reply to his question, shrugged, finished fastening his cloak, and then, just as he was about to set off and catch up with the gentleman of Lord Strange's company of players, Christopher Marlowe, the voice came again. Marlowe turned back, his hand closing around the hilt of his sidearm. Who's there? Show thyself. The young man that stepped from the shadows into the moonlight was an unprepossessing redhead of average height, who looked as if he'd been sleeping in his once respectable but now shabby-looking clothes for the last fortnight. He smiled shyly. Marlowe relaxed. 
Master Marlowe, tis an honour to meet you at last. I'm sure it is. And who are you? An actor. And by the looks of him, not a very successful one, thought Marlowe. An actor, eh? I know all the actors in London, yet I recognise not thy face. I am not from these parts. This much was obvious. His hayseed accent was thicker than Chooksbury mustard. An actor, he sounded more like a farm labourer, and judging by appearances, he probably also moonlighted as a scarecrow. I am thy most ardent admirer, Master Marlowe. In the whole wide world, there has never been as great a writer as thee. An assertion I would not refute. Saw thou the play tonight? I did. The massacre at Paris is of a piece with all your work, which is to say tis wondrous. Yet how could it not be so? For as the goddess Minerva sprang forth, full-formed, perfect, unalloyed, and consummate from mighty Jove's brow, the massacre at Paris, and before that, Tamburlaine, the Jew of Malta, Edward II, Dr. Faustus, and... And all thy other plays and poems, likewise, also sprang forth, full-formed, perfect, unalloyed, and consummate from thine, which is in every way a brow as divine as mighty Jove's. In Marlowe's line of work, sycophancy came with the territory, but this vacuous, burbling, repetitive, and cloying panegyric was frankly nauseating. The red-headed man came nearer. May I, uh, could you, would you, pardon my halting speech, but I am quite ashamed to ask this favour. It seems so gross in its impertinence. It is such a bold request. Marlowe's companions, some thirty yards further along the road, were growing restive. Kit! shouted one of them. What detains you? Patience! I shall be with you presently. Say what you like about Christopher Marlowe, and people said the most scurrilous things, but he did make time for his fans, even the frankly nauseating ones. The greatest writer in the whole wide world turned his attention back to his most ardent admirer. What is it you want of me, exactly? The red-headed man didn't respond. Instead, he bit his lip and stared at the ground. Oh, for pity's sake, man, spit it out! Thy signature! Marlowe was bemused. His admirers often requested things of him, some of them strange, but as far as he could recall, never anything quite as strange as his signature. For a start, what was the red-headed man going to do with it? My signature? Yes. Thy signature. What on earth for? As a memento of this night when first I met with Christopher Marlowe. I see. Right, well, I wouldst readily accede to thy request, but, alas, I have neither quill with which to write my signature, nor, indeed, a pot of ink in which to dip said quill. Happily, I have both. Like a magician performing a trick, the red-headed man produced from somewhere about his person a quill and a pot of ink. He then reached into his inside pocket and pulled out a sheet of paper. Here also is a parchment, and my back, bent thus, shall serve as a desk on which to write. To Marlowe's horror, the way this scraggly hick was bending over made it look for all the world as if he was inviting Marlowe to bugger him. I pretty man, straighten myself up. Here, place the parchment and the ink pot down upon this hitching post by the door. It shall serve just as well. The fellow did as he was told and then handed Marlowe the quill. If you could include a small dedication, I would be eternally grateful. And to whom shall I address this dedication? To me. And your name is? The red-headed man stared at Marlowe dumbly. It seemed for a few moments as if he'd actually forgotten his own name. Eventually it came to him. My name is William Shakespeare. Marlowe dipped the quill in the ink pot and started to write. So, Master William Shakespeare, what brings you to London? I desire fame and riches. Don't we all? Marlowe finished writing and then returned the parchment to Shakespeare. I bid thee good night, Master Shakespeare, and may good fortune attend all thy thespian endeavours. And then, with a cut bow, Marlowe turned on his heels and jogged off to join up with his pals. 
I also write plays. Barlow stopped dead and then turned back round very, very slowly. Oh, I should have guessed. You write plays. Doesn't everyone? And no doubt thou hast in another of your voluminous pockets a manuscript of a play which you have written that you shall now press upon me to read. No, I have a play which I have written that I would press upon you to see. Shakespeare extracted a printed playbill from his back pocket this time and held it out to Marlowe. The first performance shall be tomorrow afternoon in the hall at Gray's Inn. After a moment's hesitation and very much against his better judgment, Marlowe took the playbill. He gave it a quick perusal. It's a comedy. I surmised as much from the title. The Comedy of Errors by William Shakespeare. Shakespeare? The printer hath misspelt my name. (laughs) Wilt thou attend my play, Master Marlowe, sire? Wilt thou... Please, I'm much occupied at present. Please, what with one thing and another. Please, please, and other stuff. Please, please, oh, very well, I shall attend thy play. Though if thou decline to attend my play, I shall comprehend the reason. Thou art, as thou sayest, much occupied at present, what with one thing and another, and other stuff. I said I shall attend, and it is not but a base comedy anyway, a tawdry thing. I said I shall attend. What? I shall attend thy play. You shall? Yes, my word, aunt. Till tomorrow, then, Master Shakespeare. Here. Marlowe held out the playbill, but Shakespeare didn't take it. No, keep it as a memento of this night when first you met with William Shakespeare. Uh, thanks. Right, well, I bid thee once more good night. When Marlowe caught up with the others, he showed them the playbill and then made some remark, which Shakespeare couldn't hear, that caused the whole party to look round at Shakespeare and laugh. And then, with servants bearing torches to light their way, the gentleman of Lord Strange's company of players and the author of their latest smash hit went off to enjoy an evening of pleasant post-show debauchery. Shakespeare, all alone in the empty street, looked at the parchment Marlowe had signed for him and smiled as he read the dedication. But his smile faded when he reached the end. With warmest regards from Christopher Marlowe to my most ardent admirer, William Shakespeare... The last E in Shakespeare was missing. Marlowe had also misspelt his name. The hall at Gray's Inn the following day. Backstage and it was almost cutting up time. While the Comedy of Errors cast applied the finishing touches to their makeup, made last-minute adjustments to their costumes, and otherwise readied themselves for the big night, or rather the big afternoon, Shakespeare gave them their final notes. He read them from his small notebook, crossing each one out as he gave it. Nick Bottom, I prithee once more to by God's grace please desist from sawing the air too much thus. Shakespeare offered a quick demonstration of Nick Bottom's staccato, double-handed, fresh-air, karate-chopping arm movements, causing much hilarity, immediately quelled by a frosty glare from the writer-director. Show business is serious business. Uh, The Dromeos? Where art thou, Dromeos? Two cheeky chappies, Francis Flute and Tom Snout, dressed identically and squashed into the far corner, put their hands up. Here, though they'll be clowns, and therefore have some license to be clownish, do not o'erstep the mark. Speak no more than a set down for you, otherwise is to show a most pitiful ambition in the fool, or fools, that use it. We warrant, your honour, the cheeky chappies chimed in unison. A young callboy entered, ringing a bell to signify beginners. 
There was immediately a general bustle. Shakespeare raised his voice to make himself heard. Go make you ready, and everybody please remember to speak the speech as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. Suit the word to the action, the action to the word, and in conclusion make the play thine own, and enjoy thyselves. The audience that eagerly awaited cutting up in the very first performance of a play by William Shakespeare numbered exactly... 13. William Shakespeare counted them. He had by now made his way from backstage to front of house, and was standing at the back of the stalls. Marlowe was not amongst the thirteen, however. Ah, well, thought Shakespeare, he is a busy man, much occupied at present, what with one thing and another, and other... stuff. But he did say he would attend. He gave his word. He had put his hand in his heart. Lying bastard. A pair of musicians stepped through the curtains and took up position centre stage. Shakespeare had hired them for no little cost at the very last minute, but he felt sure they would prove to be worth the expense. A bit of dulcimer and crumhorn always adds a touch of class. The crumhorn player put the reed of the instrument to his lips, nodded to his partner, and the overture began. <laughs> Now, Shakespeare was quite a capable musician himself, but even someone with no knowledge of music at all would have felt fairly certain that the two fellows on stage should have been playing in the same key, or at the very least, should have been playing the same tune. The audience covered their ears. Shakespeare covered his eyes. He could feel one of his stress headaches coming on. Thank God Marlowe hadn't turned up. The hideous racket eventually staggered to an abysmal conclusion. Then the musicians took a thoroughly ill-deserved bow and exited to the infinitely more harmonious sound of their own footsteps. The callboy, along with one of his mates who'd been roped in to help, then traipsed on and pulled back the curtains, whereupon the play began. Act 1, Scene 1. A hall in the palace of Duke Salinas. Enter the Duke of Ephesus, Aegeon, the merchant of Syracuse, jailer, and other attendants. Aegeon was being played by Nick Bottom. Proceed, Salinas, to procure my fall, and by the doom of death and woes and all. Immediately upon opening his mouth, he reverted to type and started waving his arms about all over the damned place. Shakespeare took out his notebook and began scribbling in it furiously. Note to Master Bottom. If thou dost not, Master Bottom, desist forthwith in this very instant from flailing thy upper limbs about like a veritable windmill in a hurricane, then I vow by the holy wounds of Lord Jesus Christ our Saviour that I shall take my sword and ram it to its very hilt straight up thy... The huge double doors at the right-hand side of the hall suddenly flew open. Then Christopher Marlowe, plus four of his buddies and all of them drunk, stumbled into the room. Shakespeare stopped writing in his notebook. The audience stopped looking at the stage, and the actors stopped acting. Marlowe and his companions were now the focus of everyone's attention. Sorry, are we late? For some reason, this innocent query struck Marlowe's four friends as the funniest thing they'd ever heard in their entire lives. Behave yourselves! Marlowe's friends quieted themselves to stifled giggles. Marlowe caught sight of Shakespeare and gave him a cheery little wave. Shakespeare smiled weakly in return. How devoutly he wished for the ground to swallow him up. Marlowe turned back to his friends. Come, gentlemen, let us sit ourselves down. Marlowe and his pals weaved their woozy way to the front and then sat themselves down slap-bang in the middle of row A, where they made themselves right at home by producing from their pockets bottles of brandy which they straightaway started swigging from the neck and then swinging their legs up so that their feet actually rested on the apron. 
Nick Bottom looked to Shakespeare for guidance. Start again. What? Start again. What? Start again. What? Start again. Now it was Shakespeare's turn to be the focus of everyone's attention. He blushed a shade of red that perfectly matched his hair and then raised both hands in apology. Everyone swivelled back round to face the front. Nick Bottom and the rest of the cast trooped off the stage. After a brief hiatus, they all trooped back on. Proceed, Salinas, to procure my fall, and by the doom of death and woes and all. Nick Bottom once again made with the wildly semaphoring arms, which the front row gang took great delight in cruelly mimicking. Oh God, this was the prologue, the serious bit, the plot. You had to pay attention, not muck about and take the piss. Shakespeare could feel his headache getting worse. Act 1, Scene 2, The Marketplace, Antiphilus of Syracuse and Dromeo of Ephesus. Fifteen minutes into proceedings, and after that terrible start, the show had begun to steadily improve. Marlowe's rowdy crew had calmed down and were actually listening to the play. Shakespeare's headache abated a tad. Tell me, Dromeo, where is the thousand marks? I have my mistress marks upon my shoulders. Thy mistress marks? What mistress hast thou? Your worship's wife, at the Phoenix. What? There! Take that, Sir Knave! Antiphilus of Syracuse, played by Peter Quince, the best actor in the company, aimed a blow at Dromeo of Ephesus, played by Tom Snout. The punch, though it missed by a mile, elicited a huge laugh, thanks to Tom Snout's ridiculously exaggerated overreaction and a drum being hit off stage. The fact that the drum beat was out of sync with the punch, it came a little late, only heightened the comic effect. It's the magic of theatre. Act 3, Scene 1. Outside the Phoenix Tavern. Dromeo of Ephesus, Dromeo of Syracuse, and Antiphilus of Ephesus. The farcical elements were really starting to come into play now, with the laughs coming thick and fast. One of Marlowe's companions, a big rangy fellow, had a particularly booming show-offy guffaw. He simply had to be an actor. On stage, the Dromeos were indulging in some knockabout fun. We cannot get in. I'll break out the gate. I'll break your knave's pate. Aye, and break it in your face, so you break it not behind. Extraordinary how potent cheap fart gags are, Shakespeare mused. It also occurred to him that he had perhaps been unfair to Francis Flute and Tom Snout. Instead of detracting from his painstakingly crafted sacred text, their boffo antics were bringing it to life. He wrote in his notebook, Note to self, place greater faith in your actors. To which he added, And do not be so precious. Act 4, Scene 3, A Public Place. Antiphilus of Syracuse and Dromeo of Syracuse. Enter a courtesan. The arrival on stage of the courtesan, played by the gorgeous pouting Roger Starveling, triggered a predictably bawdy response from the lads down the front, with much wolf-whistling, lewd hand gestures and other equally tiresome ribaldry. Well met, well met, Master Antiphilus. Is that the ring you promised me today? Avault, thou witch! Come, Dromeo, let us go! Exeunt Antiphilus and Dromeo of Syracuse. The courtesan stroke Roger Starveling bumped and grinded her stroke his way downstage. Now, out of doubt, Antiphilus is mad. 
My way is now to hie home to his house and tell his wife that he rushed into my house and took perforce my ring away. To emphasise the body double entendre of the word ring, the courtesan stroke Roger Starveling placed her stroke his hands over her stroke his groin and formed her stroke his fingers into an O. Shakespeare smiled at this piece of business. He had a penchant for utter filth. Act 5, Scene 1, Outside the Priory, The Whole Cast. The play had come to its happy end. Antiphilus and Romeo of Ephesus and Antiphilus and Romeo of Syracuse, a pair of identical twins separated in childhood by the cruel hand of fate, were at last reunited. We came into the world like brother and brother, and now let's go hand in hand. Not one before another. With the rest of the cast gathered around them, and every face wreathed in smiles, both sets of long-lost twins clasped hands together. The end. The callboy and his mate sauntered listlessly back on and drew the curtains. The crumhorn and dulcimer player also reappeared and proceeded to inflict upon the audience a mercifully brief reprise of the hideous din they had perpetrated at the start of the afternoon's proceedings. They stepped aside and then the two surly stagehands reopened the curtains, revealing the cast now standing in a line. And then nothing happened. The audience sat on their hands while the cast stared dumbly back at them, like a row of cows peering over a hedge. Silence reigned. Shakespeare realised that the actors were waiting for the audience to applaud before they would take a bow, while the audience were waiting for the actors to take a bow before they would applaud. Shakespeare resolved this impasse by taking matters into his own hands, quite literally, and starting the applause himself. The rest of the audience joined in, none more enthusiastically than Marlowe and his friends, who whooped, hollered, and stamped the feet. And then the cast finally took their bow. Shakespeare felt a surge of relief. Apart from a shambolic beginning and end, the play had gone rather well. He closed his eyes for a few moments in order to gather his thoughts, then took out his notebook and wrote, Note to self, rehearse the curtain call to which he added, and get rid of the musicians. When he looked up from his notebook, Shakespeare couldn't help but notice that the audience seemed to have diminished somewhat, and then he saw why. Marlowe and his friends had already got up and gone. Bloody hell, that was quick. Shakespeare was completely out of breath by the time he'd caught up with Marlowe and his friends, halfway down Holborn. Master Shakespeare, why is thy face puce? (sighs) I have been running. Well, Master Marlowe? Well, what, Master Shakespeare? My play. What about it? What thinkst thou of it? Um, t'was fast. Fast? Yes, which is good. Pray tell me, why is fast good? Why, the sooner the play was finished, of course. (laughs) Ha 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 ha! This cheeky remark was made by the big, rangy fellow, the one with the booming show-offy guffaw. Marlowe scolded him. Edward Allen, thou art a saucy knave! So the big, rangy fellow with the booming show-offy guffaw was an actor after all, and not just any actor. It was the foremost actor of the age, the star of Faustus, Tamburlaine, and the Jew of Malta. It was Edward Alain. Edward Alain? Uh, Art thou the Edward Alain? 
The self same. Tis an honor to meet thee, Master Alain, for we who strut and fret our hour upon the stage, thou art indeed primus inter pares. I implore you, Shakespeare, do not flatter him, and especially not in Latin. To lard an actor with flattery is akin to feeding a donkey's strawberries. They will never be satiated. Edward Alain turned his dazzlingly handsome actor's face to Shakespeare, who suddenly felt his knees going weak. Pardon the offense, Master Shakespeare, for I did but speak in jest. I warrant thy play, I have forgot its title, The Comedy of Errors. That's it. I warrant it was a most excellently wrought piece. Didst thou not hear me laugh? In Carlisle they heard you laugh sneered Marlow, who then proceeded to introduce the other three. This is Richard Burbage. Hello, said Burbage. Art thou also a man of the theatre, Master Burbage? Marlow and Edward Alain had a right good laugh at this. Not only was he one of the most accomplished actors of the age, Richard Burbage was also the most important theatrical impresario in London, if not the entire country. He merely smiled at Shakespeare and said, <laughs> I dabble. <laughs> and those two brandy-soused tosspots over there are Thomas Kidd and Edmund Spencer. Kidd, the author of the play The Spanish Tragedy, proffered a drunken greeting, but Spencer, most famous for his poem The Fairy Queen, was having difficulty keeping his eyes open and stayed silent. For a moment Shakespeare had the bizarre impression that the pair of them were, like the protagonists of his play tonight, twins, but conjoined at the hip, similar to those horribly deformed grotesques one saw occasionally exhibited at country fairs. Then he saw that they were just holding each other up. Richard Burbage, who seemed to be the least inebriated of the group was eyeing Shakespeare in the manner of someone coolly appraising a joint of beef in a butcher's window. I concur with my friend Edward's fulsome approbation of thy play. I most especially did like the bit where the fellow hit t'other fellow. Twas very amusing, very amusing indeed. And all the acting was commendable, apart from some sawing of the air. One of the players in that respect was particularly culpable, said Kidd, with the last two words of the sentence actually coming out as particularly culpable. But on the whole, it was a meritorious effort, said Marlowe, summing up the general consensus. So, Shakespeare, convey our compliments to your company, and when that is done, come join us, and we shall raise a glass or two. Here, Marlowe handed Shakespeare a small card, decorated with cartoons of nymphs and satyrs, and on which was printed the single word, Arcadia. Present this at the door, and the porter will grant you entrance. Tis an establishment for gentlemen of refinement. It's in Clapham. The end of episode one of The Heretic's Forfeit.